Welcome everyone to the second seminar in the uh, in the line of seminars called Africa No Africa Now. Uh, the brand new uh, product of or like line of uh, row of seminars by the Norwegian Council for Africa, Fellesrådet for Africa. Once a month, we. Uh, look into a particular African country or, or a, a topic uh, relevant for uh, a region on the continent um, that particularly interest, is of interest to us as a solidarity and human rights organization uh, and also should be in our opinion to a lot of people uh, that take an interest in, in development and human rights and indeed the continent in general. Uh, my name is Johan Hermstad. I'm the director of the Norwegian Council for Africa. And um, leading up to to this seminar, I, I took a look into our history book. Um, next year, the Norwegian Council for Africa uh, is 50 years old, and uh, we've had a a long history of of supporting liberation movements, uh, in particular in the southern part of Africa. Uh, and for a period, the Norwegian Council for Africa supported financially uh, the man and the party that we're going to discuss. Uh, I, co I, I collected money for him. <laughs> and he did. Um, if you look into our, our Facebook event, you can also see uh, a picture of, of one of the, like, uh, uh, one of our uh, uh, ads for, uh, for sending money to, to actually both SANU and SAPU, um, uh, leading up to the 1980 elections in February. And since then, indeed, uh, Robert Mugabe has been in power in um, in Zimbabwe now, having turned 92, and uh, the questions we ask and the, and the way we talk about Mugabe today is somewhat different than 36 years ago. Um, it, through the, the decade from around year 2000 and uh, into the 2010s, um, throughout the continent, we, we, we experienced uh, high rates of growth, of economic growth. Um, something that, a topic that we turned our attention to in this book, Afrikas Nittini Um When we sort of looked into how this, this economic growth was not equally distributed, and also how there was a lot of there was a lot of protest regarding uh, injustice, economic injustice, as well as lack of political participation also in the countries that experienced growth. But we saw um, a hint of optimism uh, in the wake of the Arab Spring, where protest, uh, protesting youth, uh, and in particular, uh, driven forward and inspiring each other via 
social media also spread to the southern part of the continent. In the same period, Zimbabwe did not experience uh, economic growth in the same sense as uh, other parts of uh, many other countries. Uh, it went from being one of the most, actually one of the largest econom economies of the continent, um, being largely self-sufficient, uh, boasting uh, a healthy health system and, uh, and education system, into be into um, the Zimbabwean dollar being really nothing more than a joke to some, and uh, uh, despair uh, to many in, in economic terms. Um, and now, throughout the last year, we've experienced um, a type of of. Um, the same type of protest as we've experienced in many other countries, uh, not least the, the most famous expression for this kind of uh, social un unrest has been the campaign uh, with the hashtag this flag. Um, and that's really the, the kind of, uh, of movement uh, that, has, uh, that we want to look into this evening. Um, we want to. We've we've uh, we've uh, gathered three excellent experts to look into this, both from an historical perspective as well as uh, uh, sort of giving us snapshot of what is what is actually happening now. We're asking ourselves: Can the social media fueled uh, protest undergoing uh, that's uh, undergoing now in uh, in Zimbabwe, can it actually lead to political change? Uh, why is it happening now? And not least, is there a viable alternative to Mugabe or the Mugabe family? First, I'd like to, to give the floor to Helge Rene, a professor emeritus at the University of Oslo, um, a long-time expert uh, on uh, the study of, of media and democracy in throughout the South African re region and not least uh, Zimbabwe. Um, he'll uh, he'll contribute to, uh, with not least uh, an historical perspective to this question. So please, Helge. Uh, <coughs> Thank you. First of all, I think it is important to look into what kind of political system are we talking about when we talk about Zimbabwe. It is what is often called a procedural democracy or a dominant party state. That is something that it has in common with many of the other southern African states, which all are countries that uh, were formed on the basis of armed liberation struggles, where the armed liberation movement uh, turned into a political party and the dominant political party. It's the situation we have in Namibia, it's the situation we have in Angola, it's the situation we have in South Africa, it's the situation we have in Mozambique. <coughs> and it's uh, a type of system where there are regular elections with opposition parties, but where the incumbent always wins the elections. And where the role of the opposition is very much 
uh, to uh, serve as a kind of legitimacy for the ruling party. And often in these states, and they do not only exist in the southern African states, they exist in many other parts of Africa as well, we often divide them into what we could call first-generation uh, states, uh, dominant party states, those that are based on liberation movements that overthrew white racist regimes, or on second-generation uh, states, those where African liberation movements uh, overthrew African dictatorships. Uganda and Rwanda might be good examples of this, or Ethiopia. This means that these states are relatively authoritarian, though they have elections. The elections are more or less free and fair. They are more or less marked by violence, but they are elections. And the elections serve a purpose, namely to legitimize the rule of the dominant party. And that's very important to be aware of. So there have been elections in Zimbabwe all the time since 1980. And there have been elections that have given legitimacy to SANU-PF. First, when SANU-PF was running in 1980 and 1985 against SAPU, and then there was the Unity Accord in 1987, where the two parties joined forces and became the United SANU-PF. And by the way, in Zimbabwe they say this is the first uh, time in history when a cockerel has swallowed a bull, because the symbol of SANU-PF is a cockerel, and the symbol of SAPU was a big black bull. And at that time, there was a plan by Mugabe and Sanupiev to turn Zimbabwe into a one-party state. That plan was not carried out, and it became and continued to be a multi-party state with regular elections. This is important to be aware of, because there is legitimacy, not only inside Zimbabwe, but also internationally, for the Sanupiev government partly because they have held elections. And we might have our misgivings about these elections, but they have been conducted, and they have been conducted to some degree all the time under international observation. Not all the time by European uh, observers, but under international observation. And then we can discuss afterwards what the outcome of these elections have. There were two elections where the opposition almost won, uh, one of them, which uh, uh, was in 2008, uh, where uh, uh, the then uh, MDC United Party almost won, and they would have won if it hadn't been for the violence and the uh, rigging of that election, but still. Then the question we are faced with today, <clears throat> and it's very much today, the reason for the unrest in Zimbabwe is once more economic reasons. There are political misgivings, but uh, for instance, the uh, service conducted by Afrobarometer, they indicate that there is sufficient support for SANU-PF, about 60% of the population of uh, Zimbabwe supports SANU-PF, there's no doubt about that. Mugabe's popularity is rising 
it's not going down as some reports in international news media do indicate it, because he is the only only figure political figure which key seems to keep the country together otherwise the Sanu PF is full of different factions that fight each other and the opposition is in disarray with many groups also at each other's throat which means that he is the he is the figure that keeps it all together so there is a potential political crisis but there's no political crisis at the moment in Zimbabwe there's a potential political crisis but no real political crisis there is an economic crisis however and this economic crisis has been going on more or less since the end of 2014 and it's been uh, going growing worse and it's been growing worse partly because of the rise of and the rising strength of the American dollar which is the uh, currency of Zimbabwe at the moment and the, Zimbabwe, the government has been trying to introduce other international currencies instead of of the, of the US dollar among others the uh, uh, Chinese RMB but it's the dollar that counts and of course when the dollar goes up the cost of Zimbabwean goods go up and that affects the potential for exports of Zimbabwean goods and it also makes it more difficult for Zimbabwe to import and trade internationally for instance this affects the very important tobacco trade which Zimbabwe has come at the moment. last figure I saw it contributes about 25% of the foreign exchange for Zimbabwe so this means that we are faced with a situation where there is uh, unemployment rate probably is about 80% most of the economic uh, economic activities go on in the informal sector rather than in the formal sector there is gross corruption and there is gross inequality and there is unrest social unrest but mainly based on the economic situation which of course then spills out into the political situation so then we have to ask three main questions here first what is the likely outcome or what is a clear struggle of factions within the Sanu PF party there are several factions within the party which are waiting for Mugabe to die and to take over power the two most important ones are the the one that is is centered around uh, the min uh, Vice President Manangagwa and um, which uh, has the support probably of the uh, previous liberation fighters, the war veterans and the military and then there is another faction which is called the G40 group which consists of younger party members often technocrats who are uh, at the moment seems to be to a certain degree allied with Grace Mugabe Mugabe's wife but it's very difficult to find out whether that is true and then there is a faction which is outside Sanu PF at the moment but which because Joyce Mojuri was expelled from the party but these are the three factions that you can say that in some way or other are aligned with each other within 
or without or close to the party. So there are factions within the party that are vying for a position when Mugabe dies. And the problem is, will the party be able to hold together after he dies? At the moment, it's Mugabe who keeps the party together. Question is, will they, because they need to maintain their positions economically and politically, manage to stay together after he dies? That's the first problem. The second problem, what is the potential role of the opposition? At the moment, the opposition is very weak. It is split in many factions. MDC is split at the moment in three or four different factions. There is the new party which has been formed around uh, Joyce Mujuru, which is partly trying to align itself with various MDC factions, partly trying to uh, form a kind of uh, party with discontented members of SANU-PF, and partly trying to also align herself or itself with people like uh, a previous very important minister in the government who left and ran as president against Mugabe, Simba Makoni. It's very difficult to find out what the situation of the opposition is. The opposition is weak and fragmented. That's the main problem. If the opposition manages to get its act together and make a united front, there is a poss possibility that they will be able to beat SANU-PF at the coming elections. But they have to get together. And then finally, is there a chance of a kind of extra political turnover of the government or the system, for instance, by social movements? I doubt that very much. Uh, the security forces of the state are very strong. They won't let that happen. Of course, there is also the possibility, which I also doubt would be happen, that we would have a military intervention after Mugabe's death, where the military will take over power if they feel that that's the only way to maintain the stability of the country. These are the various alternatives that we are faced with. And then it's important also to look into part of the history that Zimbabwe has gone through phases of different forms of political rule which have all been run by SANU-PF. It was the first phase which went from 1980 to 1987 when the Unity Accord was signed, when Mugabe was Prime Minister and Kanan was President. And then Mugabe became uh, Executive President after the Unity Accord. And, up, and then there was the second phase, which lasted from 1987 till 2000, when there was a, a referendum over a new constitution, which was thrown out by, by uh, the people. And uh, then Mugabe, uh, because of uh, the fear that MDC, which then was about to ma maybe gain power through elections, started the so-called uh, land reform. And the land reform, which was to a large degree the ruin of the agricultural base of Zimbabwe, when uh, the occupations of the white farms took place. I never thought in my life that I should have any sympathy for Rhodesian farmers, <laughs> but uh, I must say at times I did then. Uh, <clears throat> 
And then after 2000, we had a, a period up till 2008 where there was widespread violence and oppression. And then there was new elections and every, every indication is that actually opposition won. But through the violence and through particular violence in relation to the runoff of the presidential election, uh, one managed through pressure, not least from the African Union and from South Africa, to form a so-called uh, uh, unity government where Morgan Tsvangirai became prime minister and, Zimbabwe, and Mugabe became president. And as a, a Ugandan friend of mine said, and it was at the time that the election problems also were in Kenya, where the president uh, who lost the elections became, became president and the Odinga, Odinga who, who Lost the won the elections, became prime minister. Uh, my friend uh, Sabiti Makare said we have a, a, a created a new constitutional arrangement in Africa, where the loser of the elections become prime minister, and the, no, the loser of the election becomes president, and the winner becomes prime minister. And that was what also happened in in uh, in Zimbabwe. Then after the breakdown of the of the global po political agreement and the power sharing in 2013, we have had a situation where SANU-PF has been politically dominant, but while there still has been some kind of difference between what goes on in government and what goes on in parliament. Parliament has actually in this period become more independent than it used to be, and there are more questions asked also by SANU-PF members of parliament of what is happening in government. This is a hopeful sign, and this is something that might uh, point in the direction of some sort of transition that will involve dissatisfied factions within SANU-PF and members of the opposition to create a new system after Mugabe dies. But we will see. It's early yet. And uh, Mugabe's mother <laughs> grew till she was 102. <laughs> Thank you very much again. I'd sort of like to jump straight to, to, to the question uh, to the other panelists. Do you agree with Helge that, uh, that there will be no change in, uh, in government before Mugabe dies? But first I'd like to ask Yusian uh, uh, to, um, to give an account of what your experiences have been throughout the last year, being a FK exchange, being a part of an FK exchange for the Asaibo uh, in Zimbabwe. Uh, so you only recently came back, um, and uh, yeah, we'd like to, to know also uh, what kind of protest is actually taking place, what are your experiences throughout this year, and, and uh, uh, also Towards the end, if you'd like to sort of um, uh, speculate on, on the prospects of uh, protests actually succeeding in uh, overthrowing Mugabe. Yeah. Okay, um, thank you. Um, so as, as Johan mentioned, I've, um, I've been in Zimbabwe for a year working uh, with the student movement. Um, I worked with uh, SINASU, which is the National Student Movement in Zimbabwe, and I work with the Female Student Network, um, where Patience um, comes from. Um, 
and uh, you now know a, a, a bit of the, the sort of the political context and history. Um, the, the student movement is really um, a progressive force in Zimbabwe. Um, they uh, obviously work for student rights. Um, you see that um, uh, there's no accommodation for students. Uh, the accommodation that you'll find is, is really, the conditions are really appalling. Um, and um, tuition fees keep on rising and rising. So you have a combination of the economic picture where more and more people are losing their jobs um, being retrenched and then at the same time um, those parents that may lose their job um, they then have to pay more and more money um, to support their children to, to then go to, to university. I think some courses at the University of Zimbabwe you'll have to pay around a thousand US dollars for a semester and we're talking about um, a, a country where you know, the big majority lives uh, under the, the poverty line. It's, it's extreme. Um, so so the, the student movement are trying to fight this, but they're also fighting for democracy on a national level. Um, they were also very influential in creating um, the biggest opposition party, MDC. Um, they also... <laughs> They also fight Mugabe in the sense that he's not only president of the country, um, but he's also the chancellor of every university um, in Zimbabwe, um, or every state um, university. Um, his wife, Grace Mugabe, um, she, um, she wanted a PhD. I don't know if you know the story. Um, but you know, when you live in an authoritarian regime and you want something and that someone is someone you also happen to sleep with every night, you usually you get what you want. Um, she wanted a PhD. Um, she was enrolled um, for three months at the University of Zimbabwe um, before she got a PhD. Um, then Sinasu, the student movement, asked, um, the, the university, um, you know, management, um, okay, if she got a PhD, she must have done some research, and that research is supposed to be open and available to everyone. Um, we would love to see her research, um, what she did. Um, they couldn't find that, um, so, so they wanted to take her to court. Um, there is a wonderful organization in Zimbabwe called Zimbabwe Lawyers for Human Rights. They do a wonderful work where they really support every um, human rights activist um, who's been oppressed. But this case, they said, um, we cannot take this case um, for obvious reasons. Um, so this is part of, of the um, context in Zimbabwe and, and sort of where the, the student movement fits in. Um, so I've been fortunate enough to work um, with sort of very vibrant and brave student leaders um, and uh, the secretariat uh, facilitating. Um, and, you know, um, I've, seen, I've seen also the, the general development for the past year. Um, one thing about Zimbabwe is that it I don't know what a 
proper dictatorship look like or authoritarian regime, but it doesn't, it seems quite normal um, on the surface. Um, you see that, you know, you can see that the roads are, are sort of deteriorating. You can see that um, there are no street lights, or there are street lights, there are just no light bulbs in the street lights. Um, things are sort of falling apart, but it looks fairly normal. Um, what we saw more and more throughout the year was more and more um, poverty. We could literally see um, that there were more um, children on the streets um, and their mothers selling tomatoes or selling airtime um, may have worked in the formal sector um, and then um, lost their job. We know that a lot of uh, factories have been closed down. Um, it was mentioned just now that you know because of the US dollar, it's extremely expensive to invest and to export from Zimbabwe. Um, it's much cheaper, you know, using the South African rand or the, you know, um, other neighboring countries' currency. Um, it's expensive. Um, hotels have been closing down. Um, tourists go to Zambia to see Victoria Falls instead of Zimbabwe. So we could literally see within that sort of year time frame that there was more suffering. Um, people were more and more desperate. Um, and to our sort of surprise, uh, people were quite open and they were criticizing the regime, um, the, the conditions and the president, um, which is illegal, but people were still um, quite openly criticizing him um, on social media, using their full name, their full picture. Um, some of them sort of might live abroad um, diaspora, but also people living in Zimbabwe. Um, but more and more sort of started to happen. More and more people got frustrated, um, got angry. He had a very lavish party when he turned 92 in February. His birthday bash cost, um, costed 800,000 US dollars. Um, the party was held in Mashingo area, an area affected by drought. Um, where a lot of people um, were starving. And then they asked the farmers, the villagers, um, you have to contribute one US dollar um, to Mugabe's um, birthday bash. Um, you know, it's, it's fascinating when people talk about, you know, if, if there's a white regime agenda, as if I need to go and tell them that something is wrong. Everybody knows that something that a lot of things are not right. Um, so people were very angry. Um, I could go into a cab um, in Harare and sit down and, and just talk about every sort of everyday life things. And the cab driver would start talking about how things have been going down in their country without me initiating any sort of debate. Um, and then in April, I think that's when really things sort of um, started to take off. Um, I'm not sure if you know about um, Pastor Mavariri. He, uh, he, he published a video um, uh, and, and a hashtag followed this flag. He was basically just talking about how he struggled to pay the school fees for his 
um, his kids. Um, and this, he was just so passionate and he was wearing, you know, this flag, the Zimbabwean flag and saying, I love my country. I'm very passionate about it. I love it, but I hate to see what's happening here. People are losing their jobs. Um, people um, cannot afford to pay school fees. People cannot afford to pay their, um, the, the, the drugs that they need um, for their sick uh, family members. So he posted a very passionate video about it and it, it went viral. Everybody started talking about it and tweeting about it. Um, and um, uh, this flag sort of became a thing. And then, you know, Zimbos are very creative. A lot of sort of campaigns started um, following sort of after this. Um, there was the uh, Zimbabwe shutdown, which was quite fascinating. Because um, when people demonstrate in Harare, um, in Zimbabwe, um, they usually get beaten up and arrested by the police. I've also seen that several times. Um, a number of female students um, beaten by the police with baton, with water cannons. Um, but um, this campaign, Zimbabwe Shutdown, was basically about not being in the streets. They said, look what will happen when we are not there. Um, when we're not in the street, when we're not sort of making money um, that the government is profiting from. Look what happens if we just shut down a country. Um, and through social media, they were actually able to shut down a whole country. Um, it was really fascinating to see. Um, we did not work, we, we did not go to work that day, we stayed at home. Um, but I went down to sort of a nearby shopping mall. Um, it was dead. There were no cars. No noise, which there's usually a lot of noise. Um, no, no one selling airtime, nothing. Um, it actually worked. Um, they were able to shut down the country and I think they really caught um, the president by surprise because they know how to handle demonstrating people but when people are not there, um, they didn't quite know how to handle it. They tried to block, you know, um, WhatsApp, Facebook for a few hours. Um, and by the way, you know, some might say, okay, so this is just an urban elite who's sitting there and tweeting. Um, and yes, it's an urban elite who's tweeting, that's true. Um, but WhatsApp is really cheap. Um, I have never, I mean, I've never met sort of anyone in Zimbabwe who doesn't have WhatsApp. It's actually really, you don't need a fancy phone. Uh, you can have a really bad um, phone from 1995 and you'll, <laughs> you'll have WhatsApp. Um, so, and you know, you might not be able to download the pictures that are sent there, but you will get messages um, on WhatsApp. And it's instant, you know, usually you might have to read a newspaper today after, um, you know, radio licenses is difficult to get, you know, a lot of private radio stations are not able to operate. Um, but WhatsApp is actually quite democratic. Um, everyone gets it. Um, so I, I recently wrote an article in the Norwegian newspaper Dagbladet, um, which and I called it "Can social media the Mugabe," or um, "Can social media sort of crush Mugabe?" Um, and it's, it 
first, I mean, it's obviously not the social media itself, it's the people behind it, you know, it's not the technology in itself, but um, I think that what we saw and what I saw was that a lot of people used this technology, they used it um, very creatively, um, I'll give you just one or two more examples if I have the time, there was one campaign called This, um, sorry, uh, this Gown, uh, so you know when, when you have your graduation you have a, a gown um, and this campaign was basically uh, former students um, playing football in the streets selling tomatoes wearing their gown um, you know saying the government promised us 2.2 million jobs um, instead people are being retrenched there are no jobs we should have been working but instead we are here playing football um, there was also one that patients reminded me of, uh, which was called This Flower, um, which I, th I feel says a lot. So the police brutality is intense. Um, every, usually every Wednesday, at least in Harare, um, so probably today as well, there will be a demonstration. Um, the police would beat them and the demonstrators would be peaceful. They would show up next Wednesday and they would be beaten again. And then one of them, he decided he would go to the police uh, with the bouquet of flowers as a peace offering. Um, so he went with his flowers and he was beaten again. Um, it just says so much, I feel, about the you know, resilience of, of the Zimbabwean people, of how really passionately they are fighting for their freedom. Um, and yes, you know, there are some, some challenges, or should we say problems, there are some huge problems. Um, you know, it needs to be broader, it needs to reach out to the, to the rural areas. Um, as was mentioned, um, there's not a united opposition. You know, I, I probably have more faith in civil society in Zimbabwe than having the uh, opposition, um, but, it really gives a lot of hope. Um, and I think that um, I really see that there's a lot of vibrancy and strength um, from the Zimbabwean people, um, and mainly youth. They're mainly young people, students. Um, and uh, I, I think that you know we're approaching elections in 2018, and it's gonna be really interesting to see um, what will happen um, in the future. Thank you, Stian. Patience Maunga is a, a Zimbabwean student activist and a feminist, uh, having recently, uh, or here for, also for an FK exchange um, by SI Hall. Um, you are the, the founder, you're among the founders of uh, FemHub, an international fee, uh, feminist or female student hub uh, that you will actually be able to sort of, in the end of this seminar, to, to elaborate a bit of, uh, um, also, or you'll be able to elaborate on, on that later, but, but um, uh, yeah, I'd like to, like to ask you where, uh, how, how do students work in, in such a sort of volatile political environment? And uh, what are the prospects 
political prospects for uh, for Zimbabwe do you think uh, going forward uh, at least okay thank you um, I would like to start by mentioning how students are working in Zimbabwe uh, especially female students uh, in a patriarchal society and how they are braving the political situation in Zimbabwe um, student suppression uh, does not just uh, start on national level but it starts at institutional level you find that female students are fighting sexual harassment from lecturers and uh, from uh, their fellow male students uh, because generally Zimbabwe is a patriarchal society and they believe in the that men are superior and women cannot do anything uh, so you find that in most institutions uh, issues of sexual harassment they go unreported and there's been this trend that degrees in Zimbabwe are now sexually transmitted. So you sleep with the lecturer, then you get your degree. In my line of work, we call it a tie for a mark. You don't give the lecturer the tie, you don't get the mark. So at the end of the day, we produce a very weak product. Uh, we produce uh, a female student who does not have faith in herself. And if she cannot stand up to challenge sexual harassment, then she cannot stand up to challenge the political situation that the country is going through. So through my work in Zimbabwe, we've been empowering female students to take up leadership positions and to try to fight the walls of patriarchy that hinder them uh, as female students, and also to try to raise awareness for them to report issues of sexual harassment. So we have seen like a trend, a change in how female students uh, now approach political issues uh, as well as academic issues like Stian mentioned that there are a lot of problems that they face, uh, accommodation, uh, there's no water, like there's no running tap water in institutions and you can imagine that if there's no water to a great extent it affects more the female students because of their biological makeup. So we have uh, trained female students and they have been rising to the call and to the status quo of the political situation in Zimbabwe and they have also been challenging the government. Um, I think sometime uh, when Stian was in Zimbabwe there was a demonstration which was actually led by female students and these girls were arrested and they were heavily beaten. Uh, we have uh, one of them here in Norway now under the students at risk because she could not continue with her studies. She has been very vocal in challenging the status quo. So Zimbabwean students are very much grieved by a number of issues, uh, the high tuition fees, uh, lack of proper facilities for, for them to have a good quality of education. And also the third thing is that um, the government used to give students loans and these loans were all of a sudden scraped off. And uh, some students up to today, they've graduated, but they don't have their certificates because they owe uh, 3,000, 4,000 to the government, which failed to meet its part of, of the deal to pay the, the fees for the students. So we see a, a rise in not just female students' activism, but both from uh, the female students and the male students are uh, joining hands together because they believe that they are in this thing together. They have set aside their this patriarchal tendencies that we have in our society. So they have uh, decided to take a stand as students because 
students uh, have also shaped the, the political uh, parties in Zimbabwe. For example, Zinasu, where Steven was working, is affiliated with the opposition party. And we have another student movement called Zikosu, which is affiliated to the ruling party. So you find that these politicians are also using uh, student organizations to fight in their political different groups and to try to infiltrate uh, the day-to-day -day proceedings. So in, in, in past times, before I even came for the exchange, I mean, the situation was a bit calm in Zimbabwe where, you know, students were not that much vocal. They could not go on on social media and condemn Mugabe or condemn uh, institutions or, you know, uh, give pressure to the government that, that the tuition fees be reduced. But we see that uh, by end of, in November last year, when there was the fees must fall crisis in South Africa, it also extended that to, to Zimbabwe. And students started to speak out against uh, high tuition fees, and students started to speak about uh, the, the inadequacies of the education system that was being delivered to them. So. This social media trends that has been taking place or happening in Zimbabwe, I see them more as student-led or student-begged um, up uh, um, um, hashtags. For example, the this flag hashtag, uh, it's, it became a national movement. And for me to be putting on this flag, and if I was in Zimbabwe today, I would have been arrested. By just having this flag because it has become a criminal offense to have a flag because of social media. So that's how social media has penetrated uh, the political situation in Zimbabwe. And also, there were so many hashtags like this gown initiated by, by students who were who had graduated, they did not have jobs, they were questioning the government, where is the 2.2 million jobs you promised us? Why is the $15 billion that is missing? And it is so strange that our president always blames everything on the sanctions. And you ask yourself, what has got the sanctions got to do with the poor education system? What has got the sanctions got to do with corruption? What has got the sanctions got to do with the missing $15 billion in our country? So I think young people in Zimbabwe have come to a point to realize that not everything that Mugabe says is true. Because I think we had this veil that we used to have that, you know, whatever he says is the correct thing. And actually, when you're going through your education system, you're taught, you know, that, you know, Zimbabwe is like this because of the sanctions. But now people have, see things with a different eye. They now see things for themselves. They now have a sound judgment for themselves to say, hey, but what has got the sanctions got to do with the minister building a 50-bedroom house? What has got sanctions got to do with that? So people are slowly waking up and people are slowly realizing the truth of, of what is really happening in Zimbabwe. And the more they are realizing the truth, the more they have the willpower to continue to fight the regime uh, against uh, brutality or against all these, uh, you know, um, the, 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 the harsh treatment that they get from the police when they demonstrate. And there's been a lot of disappearances. For example, there's a guy called Itai Zamara. He's been missing since last year. 
and his brother has been also on the forefront of challenging the government. He has been written on the 18th of April, he did a one-man stand uh, demonstration in the National Sports Stadium, and he pulled out a placard in front of Mugabe saying, where is my brother? And he had a flag around his neck, and they took him, and they tortured him, and they battered him. Uh, but that did not stop him. Yesterday I was reading on his, on his Facebook page, he said for the first time he had a sober talk with the police. And when they had that talk, he demanded they give him back his flag. And they gave back the flag to him. So in as much as Zimbabweans are gathering courage through social media and are being pushed by a lot of factors, you know, Mugabe always says anyone who comes in with a different agenda than his, then that person is being sponsored by the West. But Zimbabweans, what they are telling Mugabe right now is that we are not sponsored by the West, we are being sponsored by hunger and poverty. It is because of hunger that we are challenging your government. It is because of poverty that we are challenging your government. Because you find a 30-year-old graduate sitting at home, he is not employed, he cannot have his own family because he does not have any source of livelihood. He goes on the street to sell tomatoes or whatever he sells, the police, they come, they take that away from him. So what kind of a nation are we running at the end of the day? So I think the pressure has been exerted so much, not just on students, but also on the ordinary citizens, and they've had enough. And the only space they can express themselves is through social media. Though we cannot really say social media can take Mugabe away, because if an election cannot take him away, then social media can do the least. But what I, what I can proudly say is, I'm proud that Zimbabweans are eventually finding their voices. Because when this flag started, it did not just start movements in Zimbabwe, but it also started movements in the diaspora. We find that a lot of Zimbabweans in the diaspora were protesting. We also had our own demonstration here in Oslo, and it was raining, but Zimbabweans, they grabbed, and we marched, and we had that, that demonstration to, so, to show our solidarity with the Zimbabweans back home. Uh, and uh, just a week ago, at the United Nations, there were two demonstrations, people demonstrating against Mugabe and those who were demonstrating for Mugabe. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I hear Mugabe saying that Ivan Mawarile, the pastor who started this flag, is an embarrassment to the country because he protested at the United Nations. So we are seeing a new trend of uh, protests that we have never seen before. Protests not just happening in Zimbabwe, but also the diasporians joining hands with the Zimbabweans back home to demonstrate and to tell Mugabe that enough is enough. So, of course, we cannot say social media has done enough, or we cannot say then Mugabe is on his way out. We know that the old man is shaken, <laughs> because if he has got uh, the time to address on a big event that you know Ivan Mawari you don't belong to Zimbabwe. That means that Ivan Mawari has done something that has shaken the old man. So I think social media is shaking him, but 
it cannot shake him to the extent of taking him out of power. We need more strategy and we need uh, a united opposition party. That's all we need uh, because we have all sorts of different political parties right now and, and different agendas. And what we need right now is one strong opposition party, at least to just take him out of power. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like, actually, I have some follow-up questions, but I'd like to open the floor as, as early as possible. So if there's anyone in the audience who'd like to, to ask our discussants, uh, discussants anything, then raise your hand, and, uh, and uh, I'll give you the, uh, the floor uh, quite soon. But first, uh, I'd like to, to ask um, uh, a question about um, um, uh, Helge, you, you present uh, a picture where um, that's not very sort of hopeful on behalf of the student movement uh, and the protests uh, that are going on currently in Harare. So um, uh, could you sort of say what w would be sort of the, the defining, defining or the most important uh, uh, what what would turn the picture? I mean, um, in um, thirty on the thirtieth of uh, of June of this year, uh, Zimbabwe defaulted on their uh, on a payment to the IMF uh, on their external debt, uh, and now missing a payment to the IMF is usually uh, a sign that the coffers are are basically empty. Um, and there are quite a few um, public employees that have not been paid. I mean, uh, what of the the moment when when uh, Mugabe is no, no, no longer able to pay the military, uh, for instance? What is the role of uh, of Mugabe internationally? We know that uh, you know historically uh, his position has been very strong as a symbol for for the liberation movement across the continent. I mean, not only for 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 the regional organizations, but also for other uh, state leaders, his his position regionally and uh, uh, on continent in the AU has been has been strong. Um, but only recently, for instance, the the Zimbabwe no the Zambian president uh, spoke out uh, for Mugabe to to step down in the wake of of protests. Uh, is there? I mean, where, where, is the sh where should we look for a threshold, or where should we look for um, the conditions for success for the students' movement? First of all, there were a lot of questions in what you asked. <laughs> <coughs> Zimbabwe has defaulted on IMF payments before. This is not the first time. Uh, they were thrown out of IMF and lost their voting rights back in the early 2000s, and uh, there was a long time that there was no money coming from IMF nor the World Bank for, for Zimbabwe. There was an agreement uh, some years back where IMF came back in, and that's what they have defaulted on now. The reason for the default uh, is quite complicated because it has, as I, I can't go into that, because it has to do with a number of issues that are of economic reasons. One of them is actually the drought, which is uh, not only affecting Zimbabwe, but is affecting all of 
southern Africa, which has affected the pro agricultural production. There are also other reasons. Uh, but I do not think that this in itself will bring down the government, because this has happened before. I also do think that as long as they are in some way or other, or the government is in some way or other, able to contain uh, the military, and they are at the moment, partly through various forms of uh, advantages that the military enjoys, partly in economically. Uh, they may not be able to pay the ordinary soldier, but the officers get what they want. And that's what counts. We're not going to have a military coup in Zimbabwe, and I don't want one, actually. It's, uh, it's very dangerous with military coups in Africa, and I don't think that's a good option. Uh, part of the problem here is that, contrary to what we have, the situation in South Africa, for instance, the interaction between civil society in Zimbabwe and factions within the governing party is much weaker than the interaction between civil society in South Africa and factions within the ANC. And also similarly to what is the situation in Mozambique, for instance, where uh, civil society in many ways also have a closer relationship to part of the Free Limo party. That means that in many ways, if civil society and the students are going to be successful in some way or other, because of the fragmentation of the opposition, they will have to be able to interact in some way or other with what's happening within SANU-PF. And I don't see how that is going to happen. That is part of the problem and part of the challenge we are seeing now. Zimbabwe has all the time, actually, since independence, been a very, very uh, split society. It was split during the Sanu-Sapu split, and particularly during the massacres in Matabeleland. It has been split ever since. It was split over the first proposed uh, uh, land reform when uh, uh, the commission under Professor Rukuni pro uh, pro proposed a very radical land reform with the support of the International Society, IMF and, and the World Bank in 1997, which the government was against because it also would affect their farms. So, I mean, this is a situation where, the where this society has never been united in some way or other, even during the liberation struggle, and that is part of the legacy that we still see today. There were two liberation armies in Zimbabwe. These two liberation armies, they still are somewhere behind there. So, I mean, Zimbabwe is a very, very divided society. And this is something we cannot forget if we're going to talk about change. It has to come from, in some way or other, from within. And I do not see that it can happen before he dies. But then, and that is going to be incredibly challenging because we don't know which factions really are at the top at the moment. I'm, I'm very much in favor of student demonstrations. I have a long back, long back a pass in that kind of activities. Uh, and I'm very much in favor of acti actions and activities of the kind 
the people that protest are up against very strong and very brutal forces, that, as we have heard. There's no doubt about that. The question is, if you try to sit back and analyze it, the problem is, how is it going to bring about change? And I must say, I mean, because I'm becoming old and cynical, <laughs> I don't think the Arab Spring is anything to emulate. The Arab Spring has brought about dictatorship and war. It has not brought about, except for maybe in Tunisia, a, a change in the right direction. I was in uh, Iran uh, a year and a half ago, and I talked to my friends at the universities there and my colleagues there about the Arab Spring, and they said, we have had our Arab Spring, no thank you, we don't want another one. And also the role of social media. While social media are fabulous when it comes to communication, and they, are, they also have a flip side. And the flip side is that they may not be able to really create movements in themselves. Movements are made by people. And a lot of what's happening on the social media in our part of the world, in Zimbabwe, in the Arab world, etc., is based on much rumoring and much that is not true, and often it doesn't really lead to action and mobilization. But it may funnel dissatisfaction, and that is good. Dissatisfaction in Zimbabwe today is good. But Zimbabwe is also a very complicated society. Uh, as you said, there are lots of things that you're allowed to say, and you may say, suddenly then there are clampdowns on what you may say. It's very difficult to find out what, is, uh, what you're allowed to do when and at what time. At, at some time it was illegal to be more than five people together at a street corner, and suddenly the police came and beat up everyone standing in line waiting for the bus. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's complicated. It's very, very complicated. You really don't know what's happening. Mm -hmm. And I, I was there last in uh, at the turn between uh, at the end of May, beginning of June. And at that time, there had just been a one million people march in favor of Mugabe. <laughs> I, I mean, Mugabe is popular. But that's because he buses in people. That does yeah. He It's true, but you cannot, you cannot forget the fact that Mugabe has legitimacy within Zimbabwean society. Sanu PF still has legitimacy within the Zimbabwean society. If if you don't take that into account, you will never be able to do anything about it. Okay. Please, <laughs> I, I, I think uh, in the past one year, Mugabe had legitimacy over, over Zimbabwe. But now, if we see how things are changing with the war veterans, the one that went to the struggle, exactly. and how they are turning against Mugabe, very important. He's losing it because they were the ones who were always supporting him. But now, these guys have been tortured, they've been abducted. And they have been in prison, and they have also joined the this flag movement when it started, all in this grand tournament of Mugabe. And like Stephen says, that they bus people from different cities, and these people are promised stands. Right now, there's a scandal that is going on. That one million march, 
young people were promised stands. And those same stands, another minister took them and gave them to ZANU-PF supporters. Now those ZANU-PF supporters are being kicked out of that land so that they can be given to these ZANU-PF youths that were promised the stands. So they, they go to these march, marches in, in support of Mugabe. Not really because they support Mugabe, but because of what they stand to benefit if they go to a march. It's, uh a skilled manipulator, uh, Lord Mugabe. But what's the, what do you think, Mugabe? Uh, patients is is the, uh, is the road forward for the student movement and or for the popular movement for political change? Uh, Helge is uh, is asking for some sort of uh, of uh, coherence, of course, within the opposition movement, but also interaction with factions in in the in the PF. What do you think is the is the road ahead? Yeah, um, in as much as the, the, the national politics is, is affected by, by factions, the same as the students' politics, the students' movements, they are also affected because they are the ones that are being used by politicians to pursue their agendas. So, for example, there's this one guy at some point, he was on national television from a student movement the other one, Zikosu, and he was on national television, you know, addressing people old enough to be his grandmothers and his grandfathers, but he was belittling them in his speech. Why? He had been given that power by Grace Mugabe to do that. And that young man is now in China under a scholarship from Grace Mugabe. So in as, in as much as students' movements are also participating in the politics of the day, they are also as divided as the national politics is because they are the ones who are being used by these same politicians to pursue their, their agendas. So there's need for an overhaul within the, the student movement to, to have a united force and maybe to try to separate, which is very impossible, to try and separate the politics and the student movements. It's, it's very impossible to do, but uh, in as much as we continue having the, the, the national politics, political parties attached to the student movement, then it's going to be very difficult for us to mobilize as student movements to bring about the change that we want to see in the country. Hmm. Thank you. As of yet, I haven't seen any any hand, hands in the audience, so and we're already approaching. Yes, please, could you please uh, come forward here? Because uh, unfortunately, we don't have a roving mic. Um, so please uh, here as well. And it would be excellent if you if you could uh, present yourself and also uh, pose a question and not uh, uh, so much of a uh, debate uh, contribution. Okay. Thanks uh, very much. My name is Abde. Uh, my question is, what's the end game of Mugabe? Oh, because he is knowing that he's becoming old. Is it like this that he, um, a family member of his, uh, or in his family will take over the, the power after him? Uh, the second question is, uh, we have seen historically African leaders and African countries after a period when they have the power and they become old or they move on by force or any, any other way after some years with power. It becomes difficult for the country 
to have a normal um, government that, that the government will work as normal as it was before when the, when the country had the, the dictator. We had that in historically in Somalia after Siad Mubarak after he was gone out. The, the opposition were very good. They were after before when when Siad was there, the opposition were very happy. The people were saying these are the people who can take Somalia in the future. But Siad Bar went out. We had that problem, and there's uh, many examples of that in many other countries. Can we see that in Zimbabwe? Robert Mugabe goes. Thanks. My name is Mavis Bodvik uh, from the Zimbabwean Association, um, the Association of Zimbabweans in Oslo. I've written my questions down. I'm a little bit confused. Uh, my question is directed to you, Helen. Uh, when you talk about a political crisis and economic crisis and differentiating the two, so I would like you to, if it is possible, to explain to me, like I was a two-year-old as, as a Zimbabwean who knows how it is to live in Zimbabwe and struggle the way people are struggling. What is the difference between political crisis and economic crisis? Uh, isn't the economic crisis caused by the political crisis? And uh, my worry is these analysis that we get, which really don't portray a, a really True picture as Zimbabweans experience it. And are they not the, the, the analysis which uh, make it such that we don't get so much support from the international community? For example, I, I remember the Kukura Wundi atrocities. Mm. Uh, um, the international community said nothing. And so many people uh, from the Ndebele side were killed by Mkabe. Mm. And these things uh, have been happening for many years, killings and disappearances. Isn't this a political crisis right from the time when he went into power? Uh, the other question is, what will it take for the international community to help us to intervene in the things that are happening in Zimbabwe? What should we do? What kind of voice should we have so that someone is interested in what is happening and help us to stop the government, uh, things that are happening in Zimbabwe, so that people can have a good time as well. <laughs> and how can Norway, for example, contribute at least to see that the elections in 2018 are, are free and fair, so that we see if the opposition wins, if, the, if they win, they come into power, and not vice versa. What, what can be done? And why is it that the Norwegian media is not reporting on things that are happening in a, we know that a Norway is a credible country, for example, highly regarded internationally. Why can't Norway do something? Uh, now, this, uh, the, 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 the uprisings that have been happening in, in Zimbabwe. Um, CNN has reported, BBC has reported, nothing in NRQ. Thank you, uh, Stian, for writing that uh, article on uh, dark blood. We just saw recently that a, a Pistan actually also wrote something, but nothing on TV. So what will it take for Norwegians to take us seriously too and help us? Thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, I'll start with uh, Mavis. Uh, first of all, I'll give an illustration uh, of what I mean by the difference between an economic crisis and a political crisis. 
I do think that in the 1980s, from 1981 and onwards, there was a political crisis in Zimbabwe. It was not really acknowledged by anyone outside Zimbabwe, but it was during the massacres in the, in the Midlands and in the Matabeleland. There was a political crisis. There was a political crisis in relationship to the violence that took place during the elections in 2000 and 2000, uh, in 1980 and 1985. There was definitely a crisis in the country at that time, politically. There was no economic crisis. There was a tendency to not having a proper economic crisis in the years of the uh, government of national unity. The economy was growing. Everyone says Zimbabwe is on its way back to an economic normal situation. But at the same time, there was a political crisis there. What we see now is the configuration where there is both a political and an economic crisis in the, in the country. I do think that it's important to find out and think about when the two come together and when the two are different. I think what happened during the uh, massacres in, uh, in, uh, in the 80s was a shame the way that the international society uh, reacted. The reason for it was had a lot to do with the relationship to South Africa because we looked upon Zimbabwe as the sort of front against apartheid South Africa and we closed our eyes to what was happening inside Zimbabwe. It is to our great shame that this was the case, but that was part of the reason for why we did not react. And it's, it's, it's shameful. I mean, the left in, uh, in Europe has a tendency to, uh, we have a tendency to sort of follow what I often call the politics of the shifty eyes. You know, when there is a dictatorship, uh, we say that, yeah, but they have great uh, uh, campaigns to, uh, to help with the health situation and with the uh, literacy campaigns like we did in relation to Cuba. You know, this is, this is part of a problem that the left has had in relation to human rights, and we definitely had so in 1980s in relation to Zimbabwe. And then the problem about what can inter the international society do to help. I do not think the international society can do anything without in some way or other entering into some kind of agreement with the government. Because I do think that the economic crisis has to be solved in some way or other. And that means getting your hands dirty and getting into some sort of agreement with the government. I'm sorry, this is, uh, this is not something I'd like to say, but I do think, I do think that the international economic uh, organizations will have to re-enact some sort of agreement in relation to improvement, both when it comes to human rights and when it comes to uh, a reform of the economy of the country. But that's the only way, otherwise the country will fall deeper. And I'm not certain that the, uh, the Zimbabwean people will continue to take that situation where the economic crisis just gets deeper and deeper. I, I, this, this is a dilemma. This is a dilemma we are faced with. What can Norway do? They can reopen their embassy in Sarare. <laughs> That's, that's the first thing they can do. It was a very bad decision to close down, down that embassy because Zimbabwe is going to become once more a hub 
for what is happening in South Africa. It was a very short-sighted decision. Then to the question of succession in Africa. I think your question is very, very important. And it seems that in countries where succession is being just postponed and postponed, as in Zimbabwe, it leads to crisis. We're going to have a similar sort of crisis when Museveni will die sooner or later in Uganda. There are, however, a lot of countries in, in Africa where succession has been able to happen, also in dominant party states, such as in neighboring uh, Mozambique, or in, for that matter of fact, in, in South Africa. Or in, uh, when Mele Sonavi died in, uh, in Ethiopia, there was a succession. I mean, this is, this is something that you cannot say that this is uniform for Africa. But when dictators or authoritarian leaders sit and sit and sit in power, it tends to be a crisis after they, by nature's law, have to go. And I think it's a very, very important point, and that's why Mo Ibrahim has instituted this prize for leaders of Africa who step down voluntarily. I mean, Nyerere stepped down voluntarily. They had managed to have a proper succession process in Tanzania afterwards. They've had a proper succession process. We, can, we may dislike the presidents that have been elected in Zambia, but they've had a proper procession process there as well. So, I mean, this is not uniform. But when someone oversits his time, then there will be a crisis. And I'm afraid of the crisis that will come in Zimbabwe when he dies. And he is going to die. <laughs> Eventually. Um, we're running out of time, so I think we will just uh, uh, to just some closing remarks from Stian first. Yes, please. Okay, um, thank you. Um, thank you for the two very profound questions. And um, I think I um, am probably um, a bit more of an optimist. Um, I don't know if it's my youthful nature. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it's the fact that I just returned from Zimbabwe with sort of everything happening. And I, I know I haven't you know, followed uh, for, for decades and decades. Um, but I think also Mugabe is, is losing the grip a bit. Um, I'll just give briefly just a few examples. Um, Pretty uh, brief, because we're already I know, I know, yeah. I know you're mm, looking yeah. at me with, you know, devils in your eye. Um, <laughs> <laughs> tantrum, just, yeah. Um, very briefly. Um, there's been this, um, uh, another sort of hashtag movement, or another sort of, um, uh, campaign called Tajamukha. Um, what does it mean again? Patience. We have rebelled. We have rebelled. <laughs> um, and they also went to one of the hotels in Harare. Um, it used to be a, a wonderful hotel. It's not that beautiful anymore. Um, one of the vice presidents, he lived there. And um, he's not happy with the house that the government found for him. And uh, his wife is not happy with the house either. So they have stayed at this luxury hotel uh, on taxpayers' money for, you know, over a year. Um, extremely expensive, um, and people went there. And uh, the government have have some stocks in this hotel, um, 
but they're not paying their employees. So when the activists are there, the employees tell them, um, oh, he's coming now, so you can go and you can you know, make your demands. Um, he's really losing it. They used water cannons on the wall reference, the biggest you know, constituency that they have. They, they used water cannons. Um, and, and as I said, um, they released people from prison. Um, and I, I through my maid randomly also know how sort of some of that happened that wasn't reported in the newspaper. But they released people from prison. They basically emptied them, but told them, you are released, but you have to march for your president. Um, a number of other examples, but um, I think he's really losing it. There's factions within the party, um, and um, I think that on the thing about the elections, um, the rigging has started now. You know, we usually think that the rigging happens right before or during. The rigging for 2018 elections, they've started now. Um, and I would argue financing the regime is basically uh, giving money for their apparatus. I would passionately argue that uh, if there's anything we shouldn't do, and the international community and the um, international financial institution is to not um, fund their um, propaganda machine and helping them with the election for 2018. Thank you. Patience? Well, uh, for me, I can just say that uh, the, the future for Zimbabwe, I think, is looking a bit brighter uh, because of the, the many social movements, uh, risings that have happened. And in terms of um, elections, I also want to, to, to touch on that, that you find that it's very crazy. You register to vote, but the day you go to vote, you don't find your name on the water straw. Or you're told, go to this place, which is so impossible for you to do on that same day. So I, I think we need the international community's intervention a bit more earlier than during the, 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 the election process because already everything would have been done under the carpet. And it's strange that mostly they are the young people who are turned away when they go voting and they are told your name is not on the voter roll. So I think if Zimbabwe can, Zimbabwe can get uh, more international eyes and uh, people trying to see that there are checks and balances in every part of the system, there is future for a brighter Zimbabwe because now almost everyone is frustrated from the students to the civil servants who cannot even get their salaries up to now. They are told we can give you a hundred US dollars as your salary, but you have rentals to pay, you have uh, water bills to pay, your school fees to pay, and that same government that cannot pay you your salary cannot understand that they cannot send your children away from school because they have not given you your, their salary. So there's a lot of pressure going on in Zimbabwe and I think that pressure can help us to get into a new era in Zimbabwe if we can get more international eyes on Zimbabwe to have these checks and balances of the deeper uh, issues like simple processes like how is the voters role being made or organized. 
Okay, thank you so much, patience, and the rest of the panelists. Uh, uh, thank you all. Can I uh, just ask, yes. ask one question? Yes. How are you going to have leverage with the process of organizing the elections if you boycott the government? I mean, in order to have some sort of influence, you have to be in touch or you have to, in some way or other, be in touch with those who go in the country. I mean, it's fine with boycotts. I mean, but they do not achieve if there are going to be elections and we want the opposition to win. There must be some sort of reason for putting pressure on the government. That, to me, is the big dilemma. And a boycott will not achieve that. We've had boycotts of Zimbabwe. That kept some PF in power. I mean, this, this is the dilemma we're faced with. I don't like the Sandu PF government. I don't, but, but I can see no other way of trying to be part of something that can change. First, because people in Zimbabwe need some sort of economic growth now. Otherwise, they are going to be poorer and poorer and more and more hungry. And there is going to be a famine in Zimbabwe because of the drought. We have to provide some sort of aid in relation to that. And if we want the elections in 2018 to be free and fair and under proper observation internationally, we will have to have some sort of leverage with the government that is going to organize these elections. That is the dilemma we are faced with. I do not have a solution, but I have seen in the past that boycotts of Zimbabwe have just strengthened Mugabe's hand. I'm sorry. I would, I, I would have liked him to go uh, today, <laughs> or rather, or rather, ten, day, ten years ago. But I think on that uh, question and on that dilemma, we'll have to to pose. Although there is certainly, uh, it, we we could continue this debate uh, for quite some while, I think. But but um, rather, I'd like to invite you all to con to to continue um, dwelling on these issues. Uh, in other areas of Kudurusa. Rumor has it it's possible to stick around. Um, uh, we'll be back with Africa Nor in the upcoming uh, months, uh, talking about um, politics beyond uh, Zuma in uh, South Africa, the policies of South Africa, uh, at least in the wake of, of uh, of the local elections this, this fall. We will we'll talk about uh, sexual and reproductive human rights uh, and the phenomenon of, or, or, or uh, debates or, or ideas of such a thing as an African, as African values and, and look into debates on, on terms like that. Um, and uh, also several other interesting uh, issues. So I hope to see you uh, Again?